0: Enjoy Uh, meaningful end of life issues about estate planning and hospice care and funerals and burial and all of that kind of stuff that it's sometimes hard to talk about. I was really proud of the way that our church uh, showed up to have those conversations together because they really are so important. And uh, if you've been around my preaching very long, you've probably noticed I'm not the kind of preacher who usually begins my sermons with a joke. Comedy's not really my strong suit, and so, and and I think everybody can tell when you're trying too hard to be funny, and uh, there are some resources out there that could help me try to get better at this. I came across this gem on Amazon called The Preacher Joke Book. (laughs) I know you can tell by the cover that it's awesome, but I decided to spare you from anything quite that corny, but I have a joke this morning I want to share with you that I heard from a four-year-old that I think deserves to be shared. It's a Bible knock-knock joke, and it requires some crowd participation. So are you ready? Okay, you know how this goes. Knock-knock. Goliath. Goliath down, you looketh tired. It's even, it's even funnier when a four-year-old tells it to you, I promise. And I felt like that joke deserved to be told today as I reintroduce one of the most famous stories in all of the Christian scriptures. Now we've been doing this together all summer long. We've been looking back at some familiar stories from the Old Testament and we have been re-examining those old stories, maybe sometimes for some of us stories that we learned when we were children, we've been re-examining these stories from a grown-up Perspective. This is the final message today in the Flannelgraph Favorites series, and we've used that title, Flannelgraph Favorites. We called it that because some of us were fortunate to learn these stories when we were children, when we were growing up, attending Sunday school, and we had teachers who used this visual aid device. It's really just a piece of board or wood with felt covering it, but you can stick these characters to it and it can help children imagine the world of the Bible. And today's story is one of the most iconic flannograph favorite stories. One of the most iconic stories that gets told to children in Sunday school. It's the story of David and Goliath. Now, you may have never heard this story before, but I bet you've heard those names. Because the name Goliath is so recognizable that it shows up all over the place in our modern world. There are at least eight different roller coasters in the world that are called the Goliath coaster. The name Goliath has been used for warships and locomotives and airplanes and heavy lift helicopters and cranes. And if you look in the biological world, there are at least 12 different species of plants and insects and fish and animals that have Goliath in their name. And as you look at the pictures of all of these different Goliaths, there's one thing you probably notice that they all have in common, and that is that they're big. Goliath is always. Big. The Goliath frog is the largest frog in the world. The Goliath bird eater is the largest spider. Can you imagine? It's a spider called a bird eater. It's the, the largest spider in the entire world. And it's common knowledge, it's common knowledge in the modern world that to call something a Goliath is to call attention to its size. And the reason for that correlation is because the story of David and Goliath is the story of a little boy, a young boy, winning a battle against a giant of a man. And we're going to take a look at this story together today. And like we've done in previous weeks, we're going to point out some of the lessons that are commonly explained to children when we tell the kids this story. And it has to be said. It has to be said that the wonderful people who have worked in Sunday school in churches around the world, including our church, for centuries, those wonderful servants have a difficult job teaching these stories to children because they're teaching ancient stories that are full of graphic and gory details to young children who aren't old enough to comprehend all of the layers of these stories and aren't old enough to be able to reconcile the history with the current reality and figure out how they're going to avoid having nightmares about these stories. And so Sunday school teachers who work with children, they have to be careful. They have to be selective. They have to be choosy about which parts of the story they tell and which parts of the story that they skip. But our challenge, our invitation with our grown-up perspective and our grown-up minds, our challenge is to look at these stories with eyes wide open, to look at the whole thing, to consider each story in its entirety and to ask what it is that we're supposed to be learning from the whole thing. And so if you've got a Bible with you, even one on your mobile device, I'd be thrilled for you to open up with me and navigate your way to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel's near the center of the Old Testament portion of your Bible. Now since mid-June for the last eight weeks or so, we've been looking at stories about the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, who was descended from Abraham. I'm kind of recapping part of the Old Testament for you in just a few seconds here. We've been looking at these people of Israel who were promised that they were going to inherit a land that God had reserved for them. And God had also promised Abraham that he would use these people, these descendants, these Israelites, to be a blessing to the rest of the world because of their special covenant relationship with God. Can you imagine what it must have been like to live in a time before there was any written revelation about the reality or the character or the origin of the world or of God, what it was like to be somebody living in the Bronze Age or, or some, maybe even before that, trying to imagine for yourself what's happening in the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm, that seems to have influence and control over my circumstances here. There was so much unknown, so much question, so much fear, and the idea The idea was that the people of Israel, because of their covenant relationship with God, as they lived in obedience to God and God reciprocated with protection and provision and vision and leadership for them, the idea was that the rest of the world would see that and think, you know, all of these other gods must be fake because that looks real. That was the idea. And so when the people of Israel found themselves living as slaves in Egypt, God rescued them. And God begins this process of building this relationship with them, leading them on a journey toward that land that he had promised. But this relationship, it's complicated. This relationship between Israel and God is a story of Israel's tragic and repeated failures to do even the most basic things that God asks them to do. Things like, just trust me. I've got this. This is what God is constantly asking the people of Israel to do, but their pattern, their destructive pattern that they follow time and time again is that they don't trust God, and they constantly want to take matters into their own hands, and they constantly want to figure out how they can defend themselves, and how they can promote their own agenda, and how they can just take care of their own desires rather than trusting God to be their protector and their provider. And God's response, God's response to their time after time self-destruction, God's response is this relentless commitment to the Israelites, even when they're not committed to Him. And it goes on like this for centuries. And God keeps on maneuvering to try to get the Israelites to recognize His love and to recognize their need for it. And then if we fast forward a few centuries from the stories that we've been covering in Exodus and Joshua, if we fast forward a few centuries from there where we left off last week after the battle of Jericho, a lot has changed in the Israelites' world. And so by the time of 1 Samuel the Israelites have fully occupied this land that God had promised to them, and they've asked God, would you give us a king so that we can have a leader, a figurehead that we can rally around like all of the other nations have? And this new king is a guy named Saul, and Saul Saul stays busy. During his reign, during his administration, Saul stays busy because his country is constantly being harassed by the rival tribes and nations that Israel has failed to completely drive out of the land as God had instructed them to do. In in particular, Saul's administration was marked by constant attacks from the people of Philistia or people that we know as the Philistines. In fact, our story is grounded in one of the many skirmishes between the Israelite army and the Philistine army. 1 Samuel 17 explains that the Philistines had gathered their army for battle and they had crossed into Israelite territory. They had broached the border and they were in a standoff with the army of Israel who had had to rapidly gather themselves and get assembled to repel these advances. And then verse 4 begins to tell us about this giant of a man. Verse four says a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp, and his height was six cubits and a span. Now, this is—I know you know exactly what that means. This is this is where the legend of Goliath's enormous size comes from. A cubit is about 18 inches or the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger there. And a span is the distance you can measure from the end of your thumb to the end of your pinky. And so if Goliath was over six cubits tall, it would actually make him more than nine feet tall. I remember one year my dad was teaching this story to a group of high school students when I was about 10 years old, and he got these huge pieces of industrial pipe and this butcher paper, and he created, he drew a, a Goliath nine foot six inches tall on this butcher paper and set these pipes out in the church lawn and let the high school kids throw golf balls at it with a sling he'd made out of, out of a shoe, the tongue of a shoe and some shoelaces. I never wanted to be in high school so bad. I wanted to be in that class. <laughs> but it's interesting to know. It's interesting to know. I, I, may, I may move your cheese a little bit here. It's e- interesting to know that the oldest copies of 1 Samuel that we have now, since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copies of 1 Samuel that we have now list Goliath as being four cubits. And a span, which would put him at something like six and a half to seven foot tall, something like that. So somewhere along the way there was a scribal error. We don't we don't really know. We can't really be sure exactly how tall Goliath was, but that's okay because Goliath's height is not the point of this story. But the writer gives us a lot of detail even describing the enormous size of Goliath's armor and weapons to let us know this is an intimidating figure. Saul was known for being a large man, known for being an accomplished warrior, and he was scared to death. I'm I'm reminded of this scene that plays out every once in a while when the Yankees and the Astros play against each other. I mean, both of these guys are American League MVPs, you know, in their careers, but it's when they stand next to each other, it's hard to believe they're competing at the same level. And that's mu- that must be how it seemed with Goliath. He was big enough that the Israelite army in its entirety was scared of him. And in this standoff that's happening in chapter 17, Goliath keeps walking out to the middle of the battlefield. you got the, you got the army of the Philistines standing on the side of one hill, and then there's a valley, and then there's the army of the Israelites, and Goliath keeps walking out into the middle and shouting with his big, bellowing voice. And he, and he keeps challenging the Israelites to send out just one soldier, and we'll just do winner takes all. Mano y mano. Just just he and I, and for almost six weeks, day and night. I mean, we're talking about 80 different challenges here, okay? Morning and evening for 40 days, Goliath comes down to the valley, ridicules the Israelites, calls them chickens, calls them sissies, calls them every different name under the book, or in the book, book. and then the Israelite army just stands still, They fail to offer a response. In fact, verse 11 says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, there's another character that shows up in this story, though. It's this young man named David. And in earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, we learn that God has chosen David to eventually succeed Saul as king of Israel. Not yet. But eventually he'll succeed succeed Saul as the king of Israel. But in this story even to serve in the army army yet. But once in a while his father would send David on an errand to the front, to the battlefront to go and take provisions to his big brothers. And so on one such occasion, David was there when Goliath stepped forward and issued this same challenge that he did every morning and every evening, and David heard what he said, and David is offended on God's behalf about Goliath's arrogance. In fact, David says, why isn't anybody fighting this guy? Why isn't anybody going? I'll go. He starts volunteering himself to go and fight this giant, and it's a suggestion that seems ludicrous. It's laughable to everybody else who heard it, and in fact, it elicits a scolding from one of David's big brothers, but David keeps at it. He keeps bringing this up. He just can't let this go. He keeps talking about it until word of his idea, word of his courage, makes it to King Saul next is the real point of this entire chapter. I believe 1 Samuel 17 is helping to illustrate the contrast between Saul and David, that this story is telling us about the difference between the current king of Israel and the future king of Israel. Saul is terrified He's shaking. He's cowering in his tent. Saul is terrified to face this giant, even though Saul is an accomplished warrior, an accomplished champion in his own right. But he's scared, and he doesn't believe that David should go either. But David's convinced. David is convinced that this giant is no match for God. In fact, over the next few verses, David describes some earlier episodes, some memories that he has from times in his life where he was taking care of his father's sheep, and the sheep get attacked by a wild animal. Sometimes it was a lion, sometimes it was a bear. And in each of those cases, David says that he fought off the lion and the bear, and the Lord saved him the lord protected him the lord gave him the ability to fight off these wild animals and in his conversation with saul about goliath david says this he says the lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this philistine now you got to know you got to know that saul is thinking strategically This is a guy who's been in battle. This is a guy who knows how fierce it can be. you got to know that Saul, who's an experienced soldier at this point, who had already led the Israelites in multiple campaigns against the nations that were threatening them, Saul had witnessed firsthand God's ability to protect and save his people. Saul had that in his history too. But in this case... In this case, Saul had forgotten the source of their strength. In this case, he was intimidated by the threats against God's people, and he lost hope that God could protect them from something this big. And this is where David is so different. This is where David stands out. David believes that God's purposes are going to come to pass no matter what stands in the way no matter how big the obstacle, no matter how big the perceived threat. And he's so persuasive, or at least he's so expendable, that he convinces Saul to let him go face the giant. And so they strategize together. And Saul tries to equip David with the right tools, the best conventional tools of warfare that he could think of. He gives David a suit of armor, and David tries it on and says, I'm not used to wearing this stuff. I don't know how to move around in this stuff. I don't need this. And he takes it back off. And I suspect, it's not in the text, but I suspect that Saul offered a sword or a spear or something sharp to David as well. But the text says that David took just his staff, just his stick, just the walking stick that he used to help herd the sheep. He took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag and with the sling in his hand, with his sling in his hand. I mean, we're talking about a little scrap of leather and some shoelaces, you know. With his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. And now by this time, we're 40 verses in to this story. Forty verses have gone by to set all of this up, and this is finally when David and Goliath are going to face one another, and when Goliath sees David walk through the front line of the Israelite army and down that hill and into the valley, when Goliath lays eyes on this child, this defenseless child, undefended child, no armor, no no apparent weapons, when he lays eyes on him, puny and small and ill-equipped, for serious warfare. Goliath is like offended by this. Like, I can't believe you'd send this puppy out to fight against me. And it angers him all the more. But he's not going to let himself be ridiculed that way with no retribution. And so he promises, David, I'm going to annihilate you. I'm going to make an example out of you here in front of all of your people. But David... David stops and he makes a speech. (laughs) And he makes it clear that not only is he not afraid, but that he's on a spiritual mission here that's not going to fail. Beginning in verse 45, here's what chapter 17 says. I wanted to point these verses out to you. David says to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And I'm just imagining what it was like for David's big brothers to be like, did you hear what he just said? He's going to feed their carcasses to the birds? Like, where is he getting this stuff, you know? Big brothers are back here shaking in their boots, and they're listening to big little brother out there sounding like a fool to them. David, David doesn't think this is foolish at all. Verse 47, he says, Everybody who's gathered here, everybody who's gathered here is going to know that it's not by sword, it's not by spear, It's not by javelin. It's not by these conventional methods of war, these conventional weapons. It's not by those things that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, he says. And he, the Lord, will give all of you into our hands. And David is seeing this entire drama, this entire scene from a different perspective. David is recognizing that there's something bigger going on. David is seeing that there's more at stake than the safety of the Israelite army. He sees, he can envision, that a defeat here for Israel would tell the surrounding nations of the world that the God of Israel is weak and the God of Israel is vulnerable this is more than a showdown between a boy and a giant. This is a showdown between the hearts, a showdown happening in the hearts and minds of every Israelite and every Philistine about the strength of their gods. And David is convinced Based on his own history, based on his story about the lion and the bear, he's convinced that God is so powerful, that Yahweh is so powerful, that even when the battle looks like it's unevenly matched, even when it's a kid with a sling fighting an overgrown man with armor and weapons of war, that there is nothing to be afraid of. And you've got to ask yourself, where did David get that idea? Where did he decide that that could be true? In what universe is that how things work? We know where David got these ideas, don't we? We know. We know because we ourselves remember the story of how the Egyptian army with all of their chariots and horses which was like the equivalent of aircraft carriers and F-35s of their day. We remember the story of how that Egyptian army was swallowed up in the sea while the Israelites did nothing but watch, right? Like, we, re- we know that story. And we remember the story. We talked about it last week. We remember the story about how when the Israelites approached Jericho, you remember what they were holding in their hands? Trumpets, right? ram's horn trumpets and there were a few guys holding the ark of the covenant and what did they do use those trumpets to beat on the wall no they walked in a circle and they blew their horns and then they shouted when they were supposed to shout and the walls just fell down right like we know that story We didn't cover it in this series, but we could recall the story of Gideon's army defeating the Midianite army, which was enormous. I mean, thousands and thousands of people. Gideon had how many people? Do you remember? 300 men. And he took away their weapons, and he gave them torches and clay pots and ram's horns to use as trumpets and they end up defeating, driving out this huge army of Midianites. And David had grown up hearing those stories. Do you remember two weeks ago, I showed you how David's great-great-grandmother is Rahab, the woman whose family was saved from Jericho's fall because she helped enable the spies from Israel. David grew up hearing these stories. He grew up hearing the tales about his people's experience with God. He remembered the stories of the victories won generation after generation after generation before him. And he remembered that those victories were won not by human strength, not by human ingenuity, not by human weaponry or technology. They were won by God's power, right? This is the story that David has been told his entire life. He's been told his entire life that the battles that matter can't be won by people. The battles that matter are won by the living God who's carrying out his plan for humanity David remembers those moments from his past, from his people's history, and he remembers those moments in his own life when God empowered him to defeat the lions and to defeat the bears that had attacked his father's flock. And because David remembered all of those stories, he believed that God could do it again. He believed that this is the way God works. He believed that the battle was in God's hands and that God is not vulnerable. And so, armed with that confidence, armed with that sling that he'd probably been playing with since he was seven years old, David charged toward the giant, the text says. Charged toward the giant who was charging at him, and David slung one rock. I've seen this depicted in movies that have tried to tell this story and david has to shoot like you know four or five times the text says he slung one stone one stone at goliath and hit him in the center of his forehead and goliath fell face down on the ground and it was a triumphant day for israel is a victory that at least temporarily restored some of Israel's confidence in God and started to elevate public opinion about David. From that time on, David's reputation among the people, he would go on to become one of Saul's generals, and people would praise him, and they would come back from battles, and people would point all of their attention to David, even though Saul was still the king. And David started to enjoy this elevated status among the people. But in the coming years, as people praised David as their champion, their giant, I'm convinced that the whole time David thought, I just did what every one of us should have done. I just did what every Israelite should have done. Because we've all heard these stories. These stories are our stories stories, all of us. I'm convinced that David believed that any one of those Israelite soldiers or in fact any Israelite civilian could have gone out there, out into that valley as God's representative to fight Goliath, could have gone out there and pushed back the Philistines and the outcome would have been the same. I think David was so convinced about God's ability so convinced about God's plan for his people so convinced about God's protection I think David was so convinced that he would have said any one of these guys any one of us any Israelite could have gone out there and the outcome would have been the same But Saul Saul and all the other soldiers of Israel stood on those battle lines and listen to Goliath spew trash talk about their God, and they forgot their story. They forgot the narrative that they had been called to live into. They forgot the covenant, they forgot its history. They forgot the track record. They forgot all of the experiences and the battles and the moments of food being provided out of nowhere and water being provided out of nowhere and directions and light being provided out of nowhere. They forgot all of those moments because the giant was so big. And you can read this story. And you can read, you can read all of this and study all of this and you can start to think you can start to think that maybe maybe the message of this story is that God can help you win all your battles, right? Maybe you've heard it preached that way. You go back and check out the Veggie Tales version, Dave and the Giant Pickle, and maybe some of you remember this, I don't know. But little, little Junior Asparagus, the tiniest of all of the veggies, his voice sounds like this. And at the end of the story, he says, with God's help, little guys can do big things too. Yeah. (laughs) Believe it or not, that's my first public asparagus demonstration. I've, I've I've never done that before. It's also not in my notes. We'll see if second service gets that. With God's help, little guys can do big things too. And I love that message for our children. I love the idea that our kids are going to hear that your size is not a hindrance for God's work in your life. I love that. I love because later on, later on, centuries after this, in the New Testament, Paul's going to write to Timothy, his protege, the kid that he's mentoring in ministry, and he's going to say, don't let, don't let anybody look down on you because you're little or because you're young. Don't let anybody look down on you, but you be the one to set the example in faith and life and love and, spirit and purity. He says, don't, don't let people look down on you and, and decide that it's your size or your age or your experience that's a problem because God can do something through you. And I love that. And so I agree with Junior Asparagus. With God's help, little guys can do big things too. But you got. we keep saying in this series, this is not about the people in these stories. The question we're answering is, what is God doing in these stories? Stories and our conviction, our conviction as followers of Jesus Christ is that God has a plan for redeeming the world, God is in process, God is on the move, God is at work reconciling the things that were broken, taking care of all of the problems of evil in this world. That through Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself in this broken, messed up world. We believe that, right? Like this is our story. This is our conviction about what God through Christ has told us is happening here. That the universe is heading towards a place that's better than it is today. But sometimes it's hard to see the progress, right? Sometimes it's hard to see the progress. In fact, sometimes, sometimes I start to hear Christian people start talking as if things are getting worse. Sometimes I hear Christian people start talking as if the trajectory that we're on looks more like this. And I think to myself, hold on just a second. God said it was different. God said we're heading someplace better. God's on the move and says things are heading toward reconciliation. That's supposed to be the narrative that we've committed ourselves to. That's the narrative that we believe. And we believe... That the weapons that God's people fight with today are the weapons of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is our story. We believe that's the way we fight, right? Is by being people who pray, being people of peace, being people of generosity, being people of hospitality. We believe this is who we're supposed to be, but then once in a while, once in a while a giant shows up. Once in a while a giant shows up and it sure looks bigger than the ones we faced before. It sure looks bigger than the giants that have been faced before and sometimes the giant looks like a threat to religious liberty. I hear this a lot. Sometimes the threat looks like a problem that's happening in culture and it seems like some other group is getting the upper hand. And I hear that a lot. And sometimes... Sometimes the threat sounds like, oh, it's the erosion of the family. And I hear that a lot. In fact, I hear a lot of different names for this guy. I hear a lot of different names for this giant. Sometimes he sounds like he's about six foot six. Sometimes he sounds like he's about nine foot six. Sometimes he sounds like he's 900 feet tall, the way I hear him described. And I just wonder, I just wonder how big the threat has to be to make you forget your story. How big does the giant have to be to make you forget that God's plan has never failed in the past? How big does the giant have to be? to make you forget your story i don't know how tall this guy was he may have been six foot he may have been nine foot he may have been 20 feet and we just don't know what cubits are i don't know but i know he was big enough that all of the israelite army took a big step back when he showed up all of the israelite army said no that's too big Yeah, we're the people of Gideon. Yeah, we're the people of Joshua. Yeah, we're the people of Moses. Yeah, we're the people of Abraham. Yeah, we're the people who have experienced all of these different victories, but that giant looks big, real big. How big can he be? How big can he be? How big does the threat have to be to make you forget your story? How big and ominous and novel does the threat have to be to cause you to doubt God's ability to accomplish what God has planned for you and for us and for the world that we live in? How big does the threat have to be? Because here's the thing. When the threat seems too big, when the threat seems bigger than anything we faced before, then we start thinking that we have to use different tactics than we've used before. That's the problem. The problem is that when we think that the threat is enormous, then we have to go nuclear, right? Like we have to, like, scorched earth. We have to get serious. Like, self-control is not going to cut it anymore. Gentleness, that's not going to work. Kindness, are you kidding me? This is a war we're in peace well we'll show them peace when the threat looks really big we start changing tactics we start walking away from the fundamentals we start forgetting the things that we were taught and promised would lead to victory and here's jesus Here's Jesus who's going to come along years later, long after David's life has come and gone, long after David has had high moments of strong faith and then low moments of failure and sinfulness and regret, and then moments when he forgot his story. There are there, there, some famous moments when David really messes up, but the big, the big one that I'm thinking of is the moment when he started to get nervous that his army wasn't big enough to face the threats without and within. And so he starts counting everybody. Like, am I going to have enough warriors to go into this next battle? Am I going to have enough people? And God's like, what are you doing counting? What are you doing counting? I'm here. You only need one. What are you doing counting? What are you worried about? David forgot his story. And so centuries after that, Centuries after that, Jesus comes along and Jesus is reminding us of the story that is supposed to be our story. And the story sounds like, turn the other cheek when someone hits you in the face. <laughs> like, I don't think that was going to work here, right? Jesus says, don't return evil for evil. Jesus says, pray for those who are your enemies. Pray for the people who persecute you. Jesus says, bless and do not curse. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you want to get to life, you have to obey the truth and follow the way, right? And this is our way. Our way is that we are the people who remember our story even when the giant looks huge. Our way is that we stay true to the calling of our commander, that we stay true to the calling of our teacher, even when the giant looks bigger than anything we've ever seen before. Our way is that we trust that God's up to something in this world. Whether we can see the progress, whether we understand the strategy, whether we can tell that any difference is happening, our way is that we believe God's plan will not fail because it never, ever has before. So no matter how big the giant is, no matter how big the giant is, our challenge from this story is to remember our story to remember the story of the Red Sea and to remember the story of Jericho and the story of the Exodus and the story of Gideon and the Midianites and, 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 and the Amalekites and the Philistines and all of the other stories that are back there. Our story is to remember the story of the battle that happened at Calvary where Jesus fought against sin and death and offered himself so that we might all win forever. That's our story. And the hardest thing to do, the hardest thing to do, is to remember your story when you're facing a big, tall giant.